Welcome to the Maximizing Outcomes Podcast, brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Achieving bigger and better results with money, family, and business isn't about creating a bigger to-do list for yourself. It's about who can help you create results without you having to do all the work. Listen as we provide uncommon perspectives, powerful resources, and experienced people that can help you maximize outcomes in your life. Let's get to the show. In a previous episode of Maximizing Outcomes, Jim McGovern talked about the cost of college and some insights that could help you understand those tuition numbers you see, as well as how to plan to deal with those costs. I'm Patrice Sikora. And this time around, Jim has more advice on college planning, specifically the FAFSA form. Jim, are you going to tell folks this form can actually be their friend? You know, it, it's shocking, but they, uh, a little bit of paperwork actually can be your friend when it comes to paying for college. Well, I'll tell you, it's, when uh, I did this form, it was not a little bit. Yeah. Well, it, it's funny you bring that up because this is a form that when you look at it, first off, it's it's a long form, super fine print. And there have been so many people that just don't file the form because of how complex it is. Mm-hmm. So there's tons of people that would easily qualify for financial aid, but they're just so overwhelmed. They're like, uh, forget it. I'll just pay full tilt. So because of that, there's been a lot of changes to the FAFSA form, and that's actually happening right now. So we're going to talk about that a little bit, that um, there, there's some big changes and big overhauls, but it's it's sure. so much change that they've delayed the filing date. This used to come out in October, yeah. and uh, they've pushed it back. They've been saying all year it's it's going to be December, like, okay, which day in December? And they finally said it's going to be by the 31st. This form will be out, ready to go, and high school seniors can finally file. Wow. I didn't realize it was being pushed back like that. Yeah. So that leaves a little bit of, of crunch time. But like I was saying, so the, the FAFSA form, let's talk about what that stands for. It's a little bit of a tongue twister, but that's the free application for federal student aid. And this is only for high school seniors. So if your child is a junior or younger, you can't file the form, so don't waste your time. But once they're a senior, they are applying for financial aid. So if it's you know, your, your senior this year, uh, mm-hmm. 2023, well, they're really getting aid for the 2024, 2025 school year. So that opens up in December. You don't have to file it right away. You you, you could wait until June. I definitely don't advise of that. This is a uh, situation where the early bird gets the worm. In this case, the early bird's getting the money. So this is a, a lot of states when it comes to the, the state level aid. It is first come, first serve. So if you delay filing this, you might have had a chance to qualify for some money. And because you waited too long, you get nothing out of it. So well, definitely. Good to know. Yeah. Mark your calendar. File it right away. All right. Do you have to file this every year? You do. Yep. So it's not a one. I wish it was a one and done thing, but because financial situations change, tuitions change, sometimes kids transfer schools. Uh, it's is a, a homework assignment that you're going to have as a parent each year your child is in school. Mm. So, uh, so get used to it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. So what, what information do you need to have for this form? So this is where it gets a little confusing right out of the gate. You go off of a tax return from two years prior. So if your child's a senior this year, you're pulling the tax return from their sophomore year. Why and do that? Be, I, you know, you know, so know it's like a lot of things. That too. It's, it's, yeah. Why? I'm sure there's a reason for it. You know, nobody asked me my opinion, but that's just, <laughs> it, it is what it is. But, and we're going to talk about the fact that things can change, obviously, in the course of, of two years, but it, it's the two years prior tax return plus the current value of your assets as of the day you're filing the form. Oh. So- Depends on what the economy is doing and where the money's yeah. coming from to pay for school. If the uh, 
financial markets are having a really, really bad month, right? And investments are way down. If you can pick a really miserable day, file the form then. That's that's what they're they're asking for. So let's just take a quick example though of somebody who has experienced a, a really drastic change in their income from two years prior. When the financial aid comes out, the package comes out, if it's way off, you can ask for professional judgment from the school. An easy example would be, you know, one of the parents passed away mm. and now you're down to one income versus two, or somebody lost their job and they haven't found a new one and their income looks super high, or they've maybe become disabled. They have a completely different financial situation right now. So you, you can ask for professional judgment and schools are you know, pretty realistic with this stuff. They're not going to say, well, you went from 500 grand of income to zero, too bad. I mean, they're going to they're gonna probably work with you as long as you have the evidence to back it up. Okay. But, you know, you find this paperwork, how do you know if you're even going to qualify? I mean, is it is it worth your time? Because as you said, this is a multi-page document. You have to go pull in a lot of information. Back in the day, it was all pulling paper from here and there. Hopefully it's better now. But it, yeah, it's better now. I mean, it's, you're still pulling documents, but with the you know, the fact that almost everybody accesses their information online, you know, you're you're loading up a bunch of websites, pulling data most likely. But it, it's if you're fairly organized, you're looking at 30 minutes to an hour's worth of work. Okay. That's not so it's not, not no. too bad. I don't remember how much it was for you back oh, in the day. Oh, don't but. even go there. <laughs> so I, I think of it this way. What's your hourly rate? Right? Take take what you make over the course of the year, divide that by the hours that you work, and think about okay, if I have to devote an hour of my time to fill this out. How much money could I possibly save? And it might be tens of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars to fill out this form. I would say that's worth it. Yeah. So they have made it easier now uh, with with the new form. There's a way to import information directly from the IRS. So FAFSA has a data retrieval tool. So it's making it easier. I wouldn't tell everybody to just use that automatically. You can certainly enter the information. It'll pull it in, but definitely double check it. Uh, easy example of where you could get tripped up a bit is if you've have done a rollover from you know one IRA or one retirement account to another, that might show up on your tax return as income. in the way that you know, FAFSA looks at it and says, "Wow, you have way more money here than we thought," and it, it could it could change it. So definitely double check the numbers and make sure it's accurate. There are certain things that do not count on the FAFSA form, and yet people don't know that and they write the numbers down anyway, and it affects their aid. Hmm. So I would just tell everybody this, that you know there, there are no rules of thumb on uh, who's going to get aid and who's not. So I just encourage folks, just fill the thing out and submit it. Worst case scenario, you find out you get zero aid. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah. You know, but if you know for a fact, there is, there is zero chance that you're going to receive any federal aid. You're not going to receive any student, I'm sorry, any state-based aid, but you want to take advantage of some federal loans you still have to file the FAFSA form in order to qualify for the federal loans. But if you're like, yeah, we're not going to do federal or we're not going to do any kind of financing or we're just going to pay cash, we know we're not going to get any aid, then don't waste your time. But I would say that there's a lot of families that are pleasantly surprised that they say, ah, I'm probably not going to get anything. I'll fill it out anyway. And turns out they actually get some money. Yeah. I would think even if you're, you're pretty certain you're not going to qualify, do it. As you say, if it takes an hour of your time, you never know what's going to happen. Do it. Yeah. I mean, why not? And in a lot of schools, before they give out any of their money, it's not every school. There's a, there's a handful that do this. They say, well, you, you have to fill out the FAFSA form in order to get any of our aid. And that, that's merit-based aid, right? So it might be based on grades or other things. They might still require you to fill out the FAFSA. Again, that's that's a little unusual, but again, we're talking about an hour's worth of your time. Yeah. Just binge watch Netflix a little bit less one night, fill the thing out. <laughs> and submit it. 
All right. So uh, you've got the paperwork in front of you. You're putting in the numbers. And you don't, maybe you could fudge this one a little bit. <laughs> you know, maybe it's a rounding error, right? And you just <laughs> you, you, you miss a couple of zeros. A lot of people say, yeah, who's going to find out? Right. So here's how who's going to find out. There are some schools that will verify 100% of the information for 100% of their applicants. Oh dear. And you don't want to get sideways with those folks, right? Especially if they're using your information to, to dish out money from their endowment. I don't think they're going to think too kindly if you fudge the numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the government, they audit around 18% of the applications that go in each year. So mm-hmm. if you're caught lying, uh, not a big deal. Uh, fines could be up to $20,000. It could also be five years of free room and board at the um, the local prison. And uh <laughs> You know, you get to wear an orange jumpsuit and you can celebrate your release date with the uh, child's graduation date. So I guess, uh, but other than that, I I definitely wouldn't lie. You you can get audited, you can get caught, and the the penalties are substantial. So don't lie. Be honest. Really? (laughs) Really? (laughs) Should be a no-brainer, but you know. Yeah, true. True. All right. So um, let's get down to, to, you know, some of the details here. A child, when are they... When do they become independent? This is a really important question because a lot of people say, okay, well, if we're using my finances, we're using my income and my assets, then yeah, that's going to hurt our chances to qualify for for need-based aid. And people say, well, what if my child moves out of state? What if they are living totally independent? So Hmm. they have their own job, they're paying all their own bills, they're paying for tuition themselves. So basically, let's try to emancipate the child from our financial lives and, and really just declare them like completely on their own. That would be way too easy, right? That's everybody would do that if it meant that now you're going to suddenly get all kinds of, of need-based aid. Yeah. So the way the rules work on this is that the child's not considered to be an independent adult for financial aid purposes until they're age 24 or if they're married. So if they're married to give a little bit of an age break there, or if they're in the military or a military veteran, or if they are determined to be a ward of the court. So if they don't meet that criteria, it doesn't really matter what the living situation is or who's paying what bills. They're still going to have to include the parents' assets and income on the FAFSA forms. So that strategy, that may have existed at one point in time. It's been a long time since that's been completely shut down. So I I wouldn't even try to get around it that way. Yeah. Age 24, that's, I mean, you're not even 24 usually if you graduate college, if you go straight through high school, college, you're what, 21, 22? And that's why they said it that way. They wanted to make it a couple of years after the typical graduation age. So people aren't using that as a uh, just a simple loophole. But they're also trying to say there's plenty of young adults that uh, are on their own and they may be delayed college. And they're saying, you know what, I, I want to make that investment in my education. And they want to and they want to make it affordable for those people who are really in that situation where they're independent, lower income. They want to they want to help them out. But it's the it's, it's the ones that are trying to get, the I guess, a way to milk the system that are under mm-hmm. the age of 24. It, it just doesn't work. Okay, so you've given people a couple of why you should do this, but now let's talk about the form itself. So there have lo- been changes to the form. Lots of changes, uh, and I'm not going to go through all the changes. We'd be here all day. The intent from these changes, I guess, if you look at the thirty thousand foot view, was really to just simplify things. Because, like I said earlier, it was the number one reason why people didn't file. They had no idea how to complete the form. Mm-hmm. So when you used to have over a hundred questions, that's been cut down. Some people have as few as eighteen questions to answer. Uh, I would say just kind of bank on probably having 35 to 40 questions to answer. If you're using the you know the the import uh, feature through the right. IRS, um, it may speed this up a, quite a bit. But you know, going from 100 questions down to maybe a couple dozen or a few dozen is definitely an improvement. But with that simplification, has come some other uh, 
I wouldn't say unintended consequences. They definitely knew what they were doing when they when they made these changes. But you know, some of the bigger changes, this one I think really has caught people off guard when I've started to explain this to folks. They're like, wait a minute, this used to be a major savings. And that's when you had multiple kids in school at the same time. Yes. So yeah. it used to be if you have uh two kids in school, I mean you might see a you know 30, 40, 50 percent break in in the price of tuition. If you have two or three or four kids in school at the same time, I mean it really was a huge cost savings. Now they're saying we don't care if you have a hundred kids in school at the same time. There's no impact. Like they're all paying as if you only had one kid in school at a time. So that really is going to jack up the cost for a lot of a lot of middle income families are going to feel the pinch on this and higher income families especially. Any word on why they did that? I think their their view is well if you happen to space your kids out where you know they're like like my daughters I I have two older daughters that are not going to be in college at the exact same time like they're when one graduates the next one's going to go the following year okay so I wouldn't receive any break whatsoever but if they were born closer together suddenly I'd save a ton of money but I'm still buying eight years of education knock on wood right mm-hmm. So I think they just looked at it and said, well, one family sends two kids to school for eight years and they pay full tilt. Another family sends kids to eight, eight years of school, but it's all over the same overlapping time frame and they pay half and they just said, that's not fair. Okay. So it depends on what boat you're in. Some yeah. people might say, yeah, it's fair. Others say, that's not fair, but it is what it is. You can't change it. Uh, now there are, like I mentioned in the last episode, there's about 185 schools that use an alternate approach. That's called the CSS profile. Um, those schools, most of them are still offering those sibling discounts. So that could be something for a higher income family or family with, with more assets. They might say, hey, these schools look more expensive on the service, but they will give us the discount for multiple siblings. So it, it could bring the price down over there. Okay. What about uh, divorced parents? Uh, this is another big one. So it, it used to be that you would have the parent who had the most custodial days with the child would be the one filling out the FAFSA form. So easy example would be, you know, maybe you have a dad who is a teacher and has a more flexible schedule than mom who's a physician. Mm-hmm. So dad maybe has uh, 183 days a year. So it's one day more than 50-50 custody. But because he had that extra day of custody, then dad would be the one filing out the FAFSA form. So maybe dad makes $80,000 a year. And mom's a physician making three hundred thousand. Well, that's a huge advantage. They use dad's income versus mom's. Yeah, you know now um, they totally close that loophole as well. So now it's it comes down to who provides the most support financially, regardless of where the child lives. So literally, you could be providing most of the support and have minimal custody, and yet you're still going to have to be the one filing up the FAFSA form. So, yeah, if you think about the way divorce typically happens, uh, usually it's the one providing more support is going to claim that child on the tax return. Right. It's like, hey, I'm paying all this mm-hmm. alimony or child support, whatever it is. So I at least get the tax deduction. So it's usually the higher income person that is going to get hit with this one. It's a total mess because you look at any divorce decree, you look at any custody arrangements. I mean, they're all over the board. And the US Department of Education is going to have to issue guidance on this because it's not as cut and dry as the, as the FAFSA is making it sound. Can you challenge this somehow? I think that one's going to be really hard to challenge. Okay. They're just going to say, well, you're the one providing the support. So fill out the form. Yeah. If you want to get any aid, you know, sure. so I don't, I don't really know where this is going to go with this one. I'm, I'm waiting to see what the what the guidance looks like, but that hasn't come out yet. Okay. What about grandparents? I mean, often, you know, grandma, and grandpa, they want to contribute. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's wonderful when grandma and grandpa or aunt and uncle, they want to help pay for this 
outrageously high cost of education. And the way it used to work is if, if you had generous grandparents, for example, and they said, I'm going to put money into a 529 plan and, and help save for school, and then, or I'm just going to write checks to the school. When the money came out of the 529 plan and went to pay for the grandchild's college, or they just wrote a check, they had to count that as the child's income. And that's really significant because if a child has income, they assess that income at 50%. It's like an immediate 50% reduction in the financial aid. So in other words, if, if oh the child my. had $10,000, they might say, well, take half of that. We're going to reduce their demonstrated need by $5,000. That's a huge penalty. Yeah. The way we had to get around that in the past was you know, we would wait until the child's junior year. Because remember, you're going off of two years prior tax return. So once you hit that junior year, it now really doesn't matter. So we'd have you know, grandparents using their assets or their five to nine plans to pay for junior and senior year. And you have to have somebody else paying for freshman and sophomore year. Or if they didn't have money in five to nine plans, we just say, well, let the, let the grandchild take out loans. And then when they graduate, just pay the loans off. So with the new rules, you don't have to worry about that. Uh, now, FAFSA is not going to factor in any contributions that the extended family is making. Oh. So- they want to write a check, go for it. You know, it doesn't really matter when it happens. It doesn't show up as income on the FAFSA form. It's just somebody help you pay the bills. That is a huge difference there too. It's not too bad. No. Business owners. This is another tricky one. This is one that is kind of funny because I'm like, yeah, you can't lie in these things. You have to be accurate. This one's going to be really hard to be accurate, even if you're trying to be accurate. Uh, the old rules were if you had a business with less than 100 employees and it was family owned, and there was a family owned 50% or more, you didn't have to count the business value on the FAFSA form. Wow. Just think about how much wealth is created in, in family-owned businesses. Right. I mean, this is right. a great way to say, I'm just going to keep plowing money back into my business. I'll keep my income low and you know, we'll just figure this out later. Uh, the new rules, the business equity now has to be included. And I think a lot of people are going to get caught up on this one because they're going to think business equity and think that that means the fair market value of the business. Well, we do a ton of work with business owners. Almost none of them have updated valuations, right? So that's one of the things we always try to push our business and our clients to do is we, we work with them to get valuations done annually. And if they're doing that and they're reporting that in the FAFSA form, like that's going to really crush need-based aid. So it, remember, it's the it's the equity in the business, not fair market value. So in other words, you take the assets of the business minus the liabilities, that's what you're reporting on the FAFSA form. Oh, so the, you're, you're going to need an accountant. You're going to definitely want to lean yeah. on your accountant because what's the value of the assets? It's not like everything's on a statement. You know, right. what's the value of your equipment? What's the value of your building? Right. It's, I think it's an area where, you know, I, I just think it's going to be a lot of complexity. It's like a lot of billable hours. You got to pay your CPA to figure this stuff out, all just to try to qualify for, for some need based aid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So lots of fun stuff here, right, Patrice? Yeah. <laughs> I, and, you know, when again, back in the day, it was a long form. What do you still have to report on these this form now? So any assets in the child's name, any income the child makes, that's going to go in the form every time. Okay, But you're also going to include the income of the parents. And then you list parents' assets. And not all assets are included, though. So assets that go on the FAFSA form would be things like bank accounts. So whether it's checking, savings, money market CDs, mm -hmm. any liquid investment accounts. So if you have a brokerage account or an advisory account that's not part of a, a retirement account, that counts in the form. If you have any investment real estate, so not talking about the family home, but if you have a rental property, you have you know a vacation home, that is going to count. College savings accounts, they all show up on the, on the FAFSA form. Trust funds that you're aware of. Okay, so <laughs> say that you're aware of. Maybe yeah. grandma and grandpa set up a trust fund for you, but they never really told you about it. 
Well, if you don't know it exists, you have no obligation to report it. Now, if you're aware that it exists and you're a beneficiary of it, you're actually supposed to put that on the form. Oh. Uh, stock options. We have a lot of them, uh, clients that work for especially big tech firms. Big part of their compensation is stock options. And as those things vest, those are now yours and those have to be reported on FAFSA. Physical cash, right? So you might have stacks of money in your basement in a vault. <laughs> you have to, technically have to report that. I'm not well, sure how they're going to audit that little- one, but- that's going to be a tough one to prove, though. That's the tough one to prove, but honesty is the best policy. Mm, true. The college savings accounts, what if they're in the child's name? So the college savings accounts typically aren't in the child's name. They're usually set up in the parent's name and the child is listed as the beneficiary. Right. Okay. Right. So, you know, it's not a terrible hit, right? So it's not like the um, the 50% hit when the money's in the child's name directly. So for every dollar you have in a 529 plan or a bank account or a liquid investment account, you're going to lose about 5.6%, 5.64 to be exact, of demonstrated need. Mm-hmm. So it's you're better off having money to pay for college than nothing at all. But just recognize that the more you save in those countable areas, the less of a chance you're going to be able to demonstrate that you, you have a, a need. Okay. Well, what is not included in the darn form? So this is where you get strategic, right? If you know that you're going to be sending a child to school someday, why not be strategic and start to build a balance sheet that doesn't include things just to increase your your probability of, of receiving aid? You still might not get it, but at least you're positioning things to, to try to get it. So equity in a primary residence doesn't count. Mm-hmm. Retirement accounts. So this is IRAs, Roth IRAs, 401ks, 403bs, 457s, all those fun acronyms that nobody knows what they mean, right? Until you start to show them where these, where these things come from. Those don't show up on the form. Pension plans, cash value and life insurance policies, annuities, personal possessions, like whether it's cars, jewelry, antique, those, those kind of collectibles. I mean, th- those things don't show up. So Think about where a lot of people save, and that, that covers a, a pretty big portion of where wealth is stored in this country. You figure you know, people max out their retirement accounts, they get company matches, they yeah. they own permanent insurance that has cash value. You know, so some of those things can be tapped to pay for college, and yet they still don't show up in the financial aid form. So you're able to accomplish more than just save for college and, and maybe have a little bit more flexibility. When do you have to start strategizing this? This is something that that's a great a great thought to be able to put things in the right spot. Where do you and when do you start strategizing this? You know, it's kind of like the thought of when was the best time to plant a tree? It was probably 20 <laughs> years ago. Yeah. Right. But we can't go back and change that. So, when's the second best time to plant a tree? That will be today. So, look, if your child's a senior, you're not going to be able to really move the needle much on shifting assets around to really qualify for financial aid. I mean, there might be some you can do, but it's probably not going to move the needle all that much. But when the child is younger and you can start to forecast a little bit of this, it's a little bit easier to figure out where to position it. So, I, I think that this is part art, it's part science. And you have to look at what are my total cash flow sources? What are my total resources to pay for school? You don't have to lock money up and label it in college-only accounts. That certainly works for some of the people, but it can create some unintended consequences as well, which we're going to get into here in a minute. All right. Well, keep going. Keep talking to me. So let's talk about the the cash flow sources. So way back on like episode two, we talked about some fundamental rules that everybody should follow, just good financial habits that people should really form as early in life as humanly possible. One of those habits is to get in the in the rhythm of saving at least 15 to 20% of your gross income on a regular basis. In fact, we just did, I think it was episode 34 or 35, we talked about cash flow management tools that can help boost your ability to save. Those dollars that you're saving can be a great resource for funding college. So if you're used to saving 15 or 20% of your income and then the college years come up, well, you can simply pause 
where you're depositing those dollars and use those dollars to just pay tuition as the bills come in. Okay. So that's that can help. Most parents that I work with, they still want to know that I have an account, I can reach in and grab it, and I can just pay the bill that way. Like they f- they feel good about having that that big pool of money. But we can't ignore that there's also other cash flow sources as well. You can have assets that produce income, like maybe income producing assets like dividends from stocks that can be available to to pay for school. It might be interest from bonds, it might be rents from real estate, right? So it could also be the student, right? I, I personally, this is my own personal belief on this. I think students should have some skin in the game. Oh, I agree. Right? I, I think it's good for them. I think it's good for the parents, right? And if and if they want to, uh, you know, go to school and and just party for four to six years and do it all on your dime, and you're okay with that, fine. But I think a lot of people go, hey, you know what? I want to make sure that they're to learn. They, they're gonna they're gonna grow up a bit while they're in school, but they need to be there to to learn and get a degree. And if they don't treat this seriously, then they're gonna have to pay for this. So looking at what's appropriate. How much do they borrow? How much do they work while they're in school? Those are obviously some personal decisions that the family's gonna have to make, but it's certainly another another resource. All right. So we've got assets that you've accumulated. We've got cash flow that you're putting away, income from assets. Students can have some skin in the game. My favorite category is using other people's money though. How much can we get from grants and scholarships? And you know, you're gonna go into a career where you can get loan forgiveness. So yeah, you're gonna borrow money, but based on the career path that you're going into, those loans can be forgiven. And then one of the biggest hidden cash flow sources for colleges, and we covered this last time, is just make smart choices. Yeah. Graduate on time and and find a good school that fits you based on your career path, but also it's uh it's an affordable school. And here I jump in and say, How does a kid of 18 know what he wants to do or she wants to do? Yeah. You talk about a career path, no idea. A, yeah, it's a wonderful thing, but don't pick a school, as you say, that's extremely expensive and go in not knowing what you want to do. That's right. That's a great way to find yourself in a lot of debt. You, you <laughs> can find, yourself to find a themselves. Lower, <laughs> that's exactly right. At a lower right. price. At a lower that's price. Right. Okay. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> and graduate on time. Yes, definitely. Graduate on time. That's that's a huge saver. All right. So talk more about the 529. These things get promoted so much, but as you were saying up here, you know, it's going to be an asset, folks. Right. So, so five, two nines are, it's like the, the go to like automatic. It's like, if I go to work, it's like, where's the 401k plan? Do you mm. guys have one of those? Right. Five, two nines are like the 401k plan of the college savings world. In fact, when you welcome a new child into the world, by the time you get home from the hospital, you probably have a postcard in your mailbox advertising the state's five, two nine plan. <laughs> so I'm just going to, I'm going to breeze through some of the, the, the quick nuts and bolts of how five, two nine plans work. But these are, these are state sponsored programs. So every state has their own 529 plan. And when you put money in, most states give you a tax deduction if there's a state income tax. You don't get a federal income tax deduction. It's just a state income tax deduction. The money grows tax deferred. You can pull it out tax-free for qualified education expenses. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a pretty long list of what those are. And you have contribution limits to worry about, just like you do with a 401k plan. So with a, with a 529, you can get about $17,000 a year into the plan or if if it's a if it's a couple, you can get thirty four thousand dollars a year into the plan before you have to worry about any kind of a, a gift tax consequence. That's considerable, though. It's considerable, and there's ways to put even more than that in there. Yeah, you can kind of compress five years worth of contributions up front if you wanted to. So there's there's plenty of of room to get a lot of money into that bucket. But unlike some other types of accounts like this, like a uh, like a Roth IRA, for example, where there's an income limit, you don't have income limits with five two nine plans. Hmm. So. Again, that that's some of the advantages. Some of the disadvantages are the more money you have in that plan, the less that you may qualify for for need based aid. So we can either reduce or totally wipe out your need based aid. Right. And you know who knows how much college is going to cost when your child is is very little. 
And that's a fear a lot of people have. They go, well, what if I load this thing up and they don't go to college? What if college tuition comes way down? And I have all this extra money in the account. Like, what do I do then? And it's it's been a huge disadvantage and turned a lot of people off. A couple of of updates came through in the last couple of years. They're they're not significant. I think sometimes they're overly uh, promoted. The one is that you can now use any leftover five two nine money. Uh, you can use up to ten thousand dollars of that extra five two nine money to pay towards certain student loans. Mm-hmm. So, but if you have a huge student loan balance, I mean, ten thousand is nice, but yeah, put a big dent into it. And then the other new development is that you can roll up to thirty five thousand dollars from the five two nine plan into a Roth IRA for the beneficiary. So if you set up a five two nine, the way these work is the parent sets it up. That's the the account owner. The child is the beneficiary. So if they got through college and there's a whole bunch of money there, up to $35,000 over their lifetime can be transferred from the 529 into their Roth IRA. Yeah. So so that's kind of the the quick overview of 529 plans. Uh, works great for a lot of people. Other people go, you know, I, I want something that's a little bit more flexible. I want to have a more control over the assets. So there's two other assets that are pretty tax advantaged that can also work. And, and by the way, none of these are like all or nothing. I think it's a combination of, of, of tools that you have to be using. Uh, but permanent life insurance is a tool that, that surprises people with how flexible it is. Mm-hmm. So a permanent life insurance policy builds cash value. These are, you know, there's different types of, of permanent life insurance policy. Some are very cash rich, but it's an asset that does not show up on the FAFSA form. So while you're saving and, and building money inside of the policy, it's not having a, a, a ding to your to your FAFSA qualifications. The money grows tax deferred. You can still, there's ways to pull it out tax-free. But a lot of parents like this because it offers a couple of additional safety nets. And they say, well, there's also extra money here if I die before the child graduates. Well, there's plenty of money here to complete the, the pay of the uh, of the tuition and then some. Whereas the 529, whatever's in the account is all you're going to get. Right. A lot of policies have a disability provision. So if you're funding this consistently with maybe a set dollar amount and you have a disability, a lot of policies... The insurance company will take over the payment of those premiums. So that plan continues to grow right on pace that it was before your your health event occurred, except the money's coming from somebody else's pocketbook, yet you still own the policy, you still have all the all the cash in your hands. And the third one is that, you know, we've seen this a lot lately, is that hey, market volatility is very real. And it's not like a retirement plan where you say, well, maybe I'll just delay retirement because the market's bad or yeah, maybe I'll just pull money out for from a different account while the market's down. You can kind of manage that a little bit differently in retirement because you probably have some time to deal with it. College, it's like having a four-year retirement. Like you, you have the money and boom, it's all coming out of the plan in four years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of people, they invest more conservatively in a five to nine plan because of that, or they, they de-risk completely as a child gets closer to school. With certain life insurance policies, they're not market-based. So it doesn't matter if there's an economic meltdown. That cash continues to grow every single year, regardless of what's happening in the economy. So it gives people a little bit more, a little bit more stability and, and, and less worry. And you know, unlike a five to nine plan, you can use the cash inside of the policy at any age for any reason. You can use it for college. You can use it to finance a car. You can buy a business with it. You can retire with it. So it's just not specifically earmarked for any one use. But I, w- I do want to say this before we go into the, to the next type of account. The life insurance policies can make sense if it's part of an overall plan. Mm-hmm. right? What I wouldn't recommend is that you you buy a life insurance policy just to cancel it to fund college. It's just, it's just a waste. Right. It doesn't mean that that product is a bad product. It just means that you, you really didn't use it for what it was intended for. Life insurance is really best 
in a, in a, when it's a permanent policy, it's, it's best to own it because you're going to keep it forever, mm-hmm. right? You're going to use it throughout your lifetime, not just own it to have it for a few years and then get rid of it. So that's uh, probably a topic for another day to dive into some of the, more of the details. I think it's a great topic. Keep Put it on the list. I'll put that on the list. Yes. The third one we'll touch on and we'll, we'll start to wrap up here is, is Roth IRAs. So just like the life insurance does not show up on the FAFSA form. The 529s do. So if people say, well, wait a minute. So here's another account that I can put money into that grows tax deferred and I have a way to pull some money out tax free uh, and it has no impact on the aid. Well, maybe I should be using a Roth IRA as a complement to some of these other other college savings strategies. So it, it's going to give you some more flexibility than a 529 plan in some regards. So remember, 529 is only good for college. That's a pretty much it. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not going to get a state income tax deduction when you put money into a Roth IRA, whereas you would with a 529 plan. But a lot of people are kind of surprised because they think of the rules of a traditional IRA and they think about, well, if I take money out before a certain age, if I'm under the age of 59 and a half, I pay taxes, I pay a penalty. Qualified education expenses are an exemption to the 10% penalty. So you can pull money out of your Roth IRA and and not pay that that early withdrawal penalty. Okay. This is sounding better and better. Yeah. Again, it's not like the end all be all for everybody. But it, it certainly can add some flexibility because, again, like you don't know how much college is going to cost. And it's like we still have to save for your retirement. So here, any unused money in the in the in the Roth IRA, well, that's automatically going to be used for for your retirement. You don't have to worry about oh, I have, to, I have to give it to my kids. No, that, that's your money. So just some of the rules, and this is another episode we have on in the queue for just what are all the rules of Roth IRAs. But money in a Roth IRA, again, if if you're pulling money out for education, you can avoid that ten percent penalty. So there's a couple of, of little loopholes and tricks that you have to be aware of. So at any age, for any reason, at any time, any money you put into a Roth IRA can come back out tax and penalty free. And that surprises people. So I'll just give you an example. Let's take a a married couple that combined is putting $10,000 per year into Roth IRAs or maybe $5,000 each. And they did that for 10 years. Well, that means that they put $100,000 into their Roth IRAs combined over that 10-year period. They can take the entire $100,000 out completely tax-free and penalty-free. And if they want to use that for uh, you know, for education expenses, great. Okay, It's just the earnings. If there's earnings on the money and you withdraw that, if it's used for college, there's no penalty, but you do have to pay an income tax on that money. So you just look at the numbers, make sure you don't touch the earnings. The government right. doesn't really care because they've gotten their, their fair share of taxes already on the Correct. money. So Correct. yeah, just keep your yeah. eye on the numbers, leave the earnings in. Right. And, and there's also, there's a lot of parents that are, they're having uh, children later in life. So they might be over the age of 59 and a half while their kids are in school. And it doesn't matter. You can pull all the money out, earnings, contributions, whatever you want. And you've reached the point where there is no, no penalty or tax on anything. So that's what I'm saying. It, it's kind of a combination of these things. You might say, well, yeah, I like the Roth because I have more flexibility. I can pull money out penalty free, but it might not cover the entire tuition bill. Mm-hmm. But I've got money in my life insurance. I've got money in my 529 plan. The least of your worries is going to be, how am I going to pay for school? It really comes down to which bucket do I pull from and when, right? So you, what you would probably do is you would take 529 money out for freshman year. If there's enough, take it for sophomore year. And you probably use the life insurance and the Roth IRA for junior and senior year, right? And the reason for that is that the Roth IRA, when you take money out, it does show up in the FAFSA form as income the following year. Got it. Okay. So that's why you have to be, you have to know the tricks of the trade here and make sure that you're, you're kind of layering these tools uh, together. Interesting. Interesting. The timing you have to be aware of and how you can mix and match these things. Right. And, and that's why I think it's important to, to just look at money in general. I, I think a little bit differently than what I think is promoted in, in the public. 
you know, we're we're taught to silo money off. Like this is my retirement money. That's my college money. And over here is my emergency money. And I, I think if you focus on wealth creation, where think of it as one big giant bucket of money. And if you have flexibility and control to do whatever you want with that money, whenever you want, you're making progress towards all life events you're going to live through simultaneously. But the more you start to lock money up, the more these rules start to be become very tricky. And and that's why, again, I, hopefully the audience is seeing why you don't want to navigate these waters alone. I mean, if you're an expert, go for it. Most people are not an expert. I mean, we're learning every day on this stuff and we do this for a living. So you don't have to go it alone. There's plenty of people to lean on that, that can help you navigate these waters. Well, if you've got someone going to college, you better learn how to pay for college. And Jim, how can people reach you? A couple of ways to reach us. You can go to our website, www.mcgovernwealth.com. Um, you can contact us from the website. You can sign up for our, our newsletter on the website. Or if you want to email us directly, uh, our, our email address is info at mcgovernwealth.com. Follow this podcast, listeners, Maximizing Outcomes, to know when the next episode is ready for you. And of course, share with others, especially those thinking about college. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for listening to the Maximizing Outcomes podcast, brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Be sure to follow the show to be notified when new episodes become available. To suggest a topic or guest for a future episode, or learn more about how we can help to maximize outcomes in your life, visit our website at www.mcgovernwealth.com. This podcast is intended for general public use and is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or McGovern Wealth Group, and opinions stated are their own. By providing this content, Park Avenue Securities, LLC, is not undertaking to provide investment advice or a recommendation for any specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please contact a financial representative for guidance and information that is specific to your individual situation. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Jim McGovern is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS. Member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America. Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. McGovern Wealth Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. CA Insurance License Number. 0F67329. AR Insurance License Number 7119103. California Insurance License Number 0F67329. Arkansas Insurance License Number 7119103. Compliance Number 2023-165555 expires December of 2025. The primary feature of life insurance is the death benefit. Permanent life insurance consists of two types, whole life and universal life. Cash value grows in a participating whole life policy through dividends, which are declared annually by the company's board of directors and are not guaranteed. Cash value grows in a universal life policy through credited interest and decreased insurance costs. The cash value of both policy types benefit when the policyholder pays an amount above the required premium. Policy benefits are reduced by an outstanding loan and loan interest. Dividends, if any, are affected by policy loans and loan interest. If the policy lapses or is surrendered, any loans considered gained in the policy may be subject to ordinary income taxes. If the policy is a modified endowment contract, loans are treated like withdrawals. 
but is gained first subject to ordinary income taxes. If the policy owner is under 59 and a half years old, any taxable distribution from the policy may be also subject to a 10% federal tax penalty if the policy is a modified endowment contract.